Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. I'm so glad to be here with you today. Gosh, you guys, it has been so fun hearing your response to the episode last week with Samantha Ponder. I loved it too. So did Sam. Such a great show. So thank you guys for sharing about it and talking about it. And um, thanks to Sam for being on the show. We have just had the best guests on the show. I'm, I just love it. And we have got a super fun fall ahead for you as well. Hey, speaking of this fall, my new book, Remember God, releases October 2nd. And the pre-order thing is if you pre-order the book, and then go to my website, AnnieFDowns.com and go down to where it says redeem your pre-order and you put in your order number, your name, your address, all that jazz. We will give you the audiobook of Remember God for free and right away. So you don't even have to wait till October 2nd. You can go ahead and listen to the book. A bunch of y'all have done that and have gotten to listen to the book and I'm loving hearing from you about it. So thank you for that. And we've got less than a thousand codes left to give to people who pre-order the book. So if you want to do that, we're asking Christian Audio for more because they've been like an amazing partner for me and my publisher, B&H. But we also recognize that they've been incredibly generous already. So I'm just saying to you, if you want to guarantee that you get the free audiobook, go ahead and pre-order the book today. Fill out the form on my website and we would love to send you the audiobook of Remember God. Today on the show is one of my very best friends, one of just a, a brother to me, Jonathan Merritt. He's an acclaimed writer, a nationally known religion writer, and he has some incredible books. His new book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, has become an instant favorite for me. It's all about rescuing these words in our faith that are disappearing and what it looks like to actually use them well. Jonathan also has a podcast called Seekers and Speakers, which I am on this week. It's so convenient. We're like just both on each other's podcast. And I am talking about the word courage. So if you would like to go listen to that, go look for Seekers and Speakers podcast by Jonathan Merritt. And Beth Moore's episode's incredible. All, all of them are. They're just amazing. So, um, And then there's your friend Danny. So you can go listen to me talk about that word courage. And it's such an honor today to have Jonathan with us. So here is my conversation with Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan, listen, I've got a real thing for um, roasted cherry tomatoes right now. Do you even know it? Do you know that life? Never have I ever. Do you like cherry tomatoes? Do you eat tomatoes? Yeah, I love cherry tomatoes. So if you just cut them in half and put olive oil, salt, and pepper, and just roast them for like an hour, uh-huh. they're unbelievable. They totally change taste. They get crispy. They're awesome. So that was my snack today, pal. I need to do that. That's a great snack. Yeah, because it's tomatoes, right? But they're awesome because they're roasted. They're better. I, I don't like, I can't like just eat raw cherry tomatoes. So See, I can do the raw ones as well. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, listen, let's back up. That's that's a riveting start to our podcast for everyone. It's, Everybody. It's, <laughs> it's so funny because I, I'm like, <laughs> I was about to say, so wait, didn't you, when are you going to hit record? Uh, oh, no, that wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what the people come here for. What snack should I have today? I should probably listen to that. Sounds fun. Because Annie mm-hmm. will tell me another recipe. No, that's the first one. That's the, that sounds tasty. Right. Spinoff podcast. <laughs> Do you know when I used to be, um, uh, one of my friends used to come up with other last names for me. And he was like, you could be Annie F. Frowns and tell all the things that are going wrong in the world. Like, it's just like <laughs> oh, a Debbie Downer news. Oh. And it's Annie F. Frowns. Oh, oh, funny. I'm just going to reserve that as a parody account on Twitter. Yeah, there you go. That's right. Go ahead and nab that. Oh. Um, do you remember the olden days, right when Twitter started, people used to always tell you, get your name and then get Annie F. Downs sucks. <laughs> Annie F. Downs, the worst. Do you remember all that? You know what? At that when when Twitter started, I was a nobody. So at the time, it would have been the most flattering thing. And I'm still a nobody in, in many regards. Right. But uh, it would it would have been hil- hilarious and also quite flattering if somebody had a parody account of me. Right, right. It would not be like, quite. Please, <laughs> please, someone somebody. care that much. <laughs> Yeah, somebody care that much to parody me. Everybody was like, right. "Who? Uh, Jonathan? Uh, I don't don't know. Who he sucks. I don't know who he is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's a stranger. Sorry that he sucks. <laughs> right. 
Um, the problem is, is my regular account is basically a parody account. So there you oh have gosh, it. Right. Well, <laughs> well, your responses and responding people to you can can get quite parodical. Is that a word? Oh, oh, parody, paradise. I think I feel like that was that was kind of a pun. Parad, parodical. I don't know. Right. <laughs> it is now. I don't, no it idea. Here's let's talk about the most important thing, Georgia Bulldogs. Oh, yes. Listen, yes. I saw You know, go. Just go. Just say it. Well, I was going to say I I was so excited this last week. I was traveling. I got I was in South Bend, Indiana to see uh, a good a good friend of both of ours uh, who is a pastor there, and I was preaching at a church, and so I I flew in and after uh, I landed, I thought, well, you know, Georgia, I'm never going to see the game. We were playing like, you know, I don't know who it was, like South Gwinnett High School. A serious. It was uh, Austin, Austin P. University, based here in central middle Tennessee. But they got right. So if yeah. you if you went to Austin P., I apologize. It's I'm sure it's a lovely institution. Sure, sure, sure. But not known, not known for their football. Sure, so sure, sure. I thought, no way it's going to be on TV. I walk into the you want to talk about the sexy rider life yeah uh, i walked into the uh, lobby of the candlewood suites yep and um and there it was on the tv yeah. and they had like a special package so i got to sit down on a pleather couch yep and uh grab a a pack of crackers and uh, a free coffee and i got to watch the game yeah. it was it was really delightful and of course we won of course we won we are going to keep talking about georgia but you I love when people talk about their writers. So for our friends who are listening, your writer is like this piece of paper that goes before you to an event that tells like, this is the airline I'll be on. This is the kind of hotel I stay in. This is the food I would love for you to have if you're providing food. What What is your writer like? I mean, obviously Candlewood Suites. So. Well, no, you know, it was uh, my writer is technically, I'm an SPG person, Candlewood uh -huh. Suites yep. is IHG. Those of you who travel for a living know exactly what we're, it's like, we're, we're the people who see, you remember the George Clooney movie, Up in the Air? Yeah, 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 where they live in the, or they, they live in, they are, it, the whole thing's set in an airport, right? Yeah, it's like he's traveling all the time, His, he's got this sad apartment and it's totally empty, but like everybody at all the hotels and the check-in desk, they all know him. Blah, 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 blah. Right. And I remember all, I went to see this with all my friends and everyone was like, oh my gosh, what a heartbreaking movie. And I saw it and I was like, yeah, he made some legitimate life choices. Yeah. Like that seems like a kind of a normal life. And that <laughs> yeah. was when I knew like, once you kind of know all of the the acronyms for hotels and whatnot, it, it right. gets pretty, pretty sad. Do you know the Delta guy at our counter who does the, who's always at the counter I walk up to? I hadn't seen him in a little bit and he was there last week and I was like, Hey Tom, I, I feel like I haven't seen you. Are you, are, every, how you doing? You, you all right? And he was like, actually I had a heart attack and I almost died, but I lived. And so that's why you haven't seen me, but I'm back. And I thought, what a weird life I live that I would have never known if he would have died. Like I wouldn't have known. I just, and he was like, thanks for asking about me. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is bizarre that I don't know anything except where he shows up for work, but but he had a heart attack and lived. It is luckily. strange. It's very strange. Yeah. Well, to your question, to your question, yeah, my writer. Your writer. The, Tell me. The only thing, the only thing that's changed is, is I have now. I tried since to when eat. changed. What do you mean? Oh, probably six months ago. I I am. Everybody's gonna laugh at this. Oh, I can't wait. Go ahead. Your permission. I am vegan until six p.m. every day. <laughs> I do love so that. So people are like, why, why? <laughs> but, it, you know, I ran across this. It was like a Mark Bittman thing. Uh -huh. And at the very least, if, if let's say I am in like Pig's Knuckle, Arkansas, right, right, where nothing is vegan, I at least try to do vegetarian. Yeah. But, uh, but especially when I'm home, I'm vegan until 6 p.m. And then after 6 p.m., I eat somewhat regularly. I still try to make healthy choices. But just to shift my diet away from animal products to plant products. But most people skip that part of the rider. And right. it's always like, you know, swing by Whataburger on the way to the conference. And you're just going, no, that's not even meat. Yeah. I don't even know yeah. what diet that is. That's not even, <laughs> that's not even carnivorous. That's right. cancerous. Right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yuck. Gross. Man, I'm telling you, 
I don't know why that is not your Twitter bio. Vegan until 6 p.m. is like the best sentence about a person that I've ever heard. I love it so much. Okay, so my, that is really interesting. So you don't tell them like, because ours has like trail mix, peanut butter, bananas, apples. Like we have a list. You don't have a list? I don't. I've never had a list, but also I, I don't go to places as fancy as you do. Well, yes, you do. Yes, you do. We all go to the same places. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. kidding. That is so funny. You know, they always tell the story about whoever they is. Always tell the story about the famous rock star who had only green M&Ms on his rider and like Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. I'm like, Mm -hmm. that's that's not me. I'm not. That's not a good use of my time. I just need to have something healthy when I get there. And then our one unhealthy thing, like this is why I'm sad you don't have a proper list because I want to know what your one unhealthy thing is is Eliza and I love salt and vinegar potato chips. <laughs> uh, and so it's like water, LaCroix, bananas, apples, salt and vinegar potato chips. My food is like uh, cashews. I don't have a fun one. Yeah. You need to get at least one fun one because it makes it like real cute. Like it's like fun. I need to like some sort of uh, some sort of potato. Now listen, if I was going back to chowder, I'd be like, uh, I need cheddar cheese bugles. <laughs> Oh my okay. gosh. You know, you, you know, are I would lying I, to me. No, to this day, to this day, if somebody brings me in and they put cheddar cheese bugles in my room, first of all, I'm going to be, I'm going to be slightly PO'd, but then immediately, <laughs> immediately I will tear up in the bag. I will take 10 bugles, put them each on my fingers, like yep. my witch hands. Yeah. Sit down. I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn Willow on on TNT. I'm going to turn Willow on or some other Val Kilmer movie, and I'm going to be eating bugles off my fingers until the bag is empty. I can guarantee. You. So it's I oh non-negotiable. I'm so glad to know, dear everyone. Next time you're with Jonathan, cheddar cheese bagels, B- uh, bagels. That too, bugles. Cheddar, cheddar cheese, cheese bugles. bugles. My thing is when someone gives me a bad thing, I will do the ten bugles on my fingers, and then I make myself throw away the bag. Like you just have to. Because in those hotel well, rooms, things can get so dark. <laughs> yes. Yes. They re- no, they really, they, they really, really can. When you get done, you've been signing books. It's like 10.30 p.m. Nothing is open, probably yes. except Whataburger. Yes. Right? Or some other, some other place. You, not uh, by Whataburger. Whose who's, who's, who's primary menu item is a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, what is this? Hey, would you what? like a what is this? Or, a, or a, I think I'll try that. No, but they that I get into my room and I always just like eat everything that's inside right. and I kill my diet. Yes, that's the same. If my room we, we merits our snackers though. Are you? Is that running the family? Listen, that's where I wanted us to go next. I don't know if the downs is No, yes, yes, yes. But I really want you to talk about speaking of Georgia Bulldogs, I want you to talk about how your family feels about the Georgia Bulldogs. Oh man, it is it is it is deeply idolatrous in our family. <laughs> um, we have we have an entire Georgia compound. Yes, this is what I wanted basement. you to tell people. Yes, this is what uh, I wanted. We've got a Georgia a Georgia trophy room. We've got uh, every inch of every wall. What kind of trophies are in there? Oh, like replicas of SEC championship trophies, signed oh, gear. My God. Um, all I mean, signed footballs, signed jerseys. It's nuts. And even like the 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 sliding windows are like sandblasted with G's and dog heads, and it's crazy. That's amazing. It's crazy. We've got a Georgia pool table, and it says, which you'll understand this, it's signed and it says, Run, Lindsay, Run. It's signed by oh, sure. uh, Buck Ballou, the, wow. the quarterback of our national championship yes. team. It's a custom I was about to say, Georgia. he came over and signed your pool table? I kid you not. It's sick. We have a Georgia kitchen, a Georgia bathroom. You lift, listen, you lift the toilet seat. This is how people will know whether you're doing a number one or number two. Uh, you, if you, if you, move, you move the toilet seat, it plays uh, Glory to Old Georgia. Wow. They're like, oh, yeah, she's going to be in there a while. (laughs) Yeah, that's going to take a minute. (laughs) We're all boys. We're all boys in our family. So somebody goes in there and lowers the seat, you You evacuate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody knows. You hear that? You hear that fight song, you run. You're the middle of three sons, right? Mm hmm. Okay. Which is to say, I'm on Lexapro. (laughs) Um, I, I have so many middle child issues. It's, it's literally ridiculous. Really? Like you can trace so much of your pain to middle childrenness. Uh, every middle child out here 
is nodding in agreement. Got I it. promise okay. you. Every middle child listening is going, oh yeah, because you grow up with the first son who is the favorite. He gets to do everything first. And then your parents learn, right? right? So so they go, ah, 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 ah. No, no, no. Like, here's the thing. My brother went to UGA. Right. Uh, he'll he'll never, I hope he'll never listen to this. I'll tell his story. James, <laughs> we were at Georgia James, at the same time, James and I. And I can say this because James is a very successful attorney now, but in college, he partied. He was put on, you know, academic probation. It took him seven years to graduate. Now he got a bachelor's. Typically with that, you become what people call a doctor. <laughs> but uh, it took him seven years to get his bachelor's degree. And so by the time I came around, my parents said, no, if you go to Georgia, you, you can't take your car. We won't give you any help. You're not going to go to. So I went to a Christian college instead because Georgia was off the table. Okay. And so it was like that all the time growing up. But here is the maddening thing for people who are middle children. By the time the parents get to the third child, now they're exhausted. Sure. So they're, they're over it. So the, and now you've got, you've got the first child who's like the, the prize possession. They got mom and dad. That's no first love. And then you have the last child. That's the baby. Right. You know? So now they, the parents have kind of opened up again and Joshua got a nicer car than we got. He got away with everything. He got a later curfew. And so you in the middle and you begin to compare your life to the older and the younger and the, and it's, is I'm less lovable. Mm. Now we get real. Yeah. Get real about that. Part of it is, is you don't feel seen because you, you're, you're the sort of the, the, the child that gets the least amount of attention. And so a lot of, a lot, because based on our childhood wounds, a lot of middle children end up being any threes. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's so interesting because so many of the male threes I know are not the oldest children in their family. Yeah, so there you have it. That's what which where do you fall in the uh, order? I'm the oldest of three sisters. Ah. Uh. But then we also have cousins that lived with us and were, you know, raised with us. But of the most of the ones who like actually live together all the time, I'm the oldest of three. Well, tell us, tell us then. <laughs> tell us, uh, Annie. Give us a peek into your life. How did that, what What are your childhood wounds from being uh, an <laughs> oldest child? <laughs> what are your wounds, Annie? Go ahead and just tell us all. You know, I think I became a seven because I felt like it was my responsibility to entertain everybody. Uh, it was my responsibility to be the the one who set the emotional pace, whether that was true or not. Um, that's how I felt. So I know in my situation, sometimes because you're the, you um, the first child almost in some ways can become the surrogate parent, parent at yeah, times. Yeah. And that can create resentment. Did you ever get any, did you ever feel that growing up where you were like, okay, Annie has to play this role of police woman or, uh, mediator or parent, did you ever run into that as the eldest? Um, I felt more like, well, because my youngest sister's eight years younger than me, I put myself in the parent role Right. where I was like, what do you mean you're going to let her tube on the back behind the boat at three years old? And my parents like, we've done this, like we've done this twice and y'all are both alive. Right. So, so and I was like, she's in danger. Right. right. So like, right. right. I jokingly say my sister Sally is the only child I've ever raised, you know, because because I was so certain my parents were not doing it well when they were. They were doing great. They knew what they were doing. I just had never raised a kid before. So I was making all the first parent mistakes <laughs> when I was 11, you know. <laughs> so I felt I probably felt responsible toward her more than more than my parents asked me to or more than I should have just because we were so different in age. That makes sense. So, that makes total sense. But I sense. think that's why I'm the only seven of our crew. Because mm. they would both, my two sisters would say they're, one's a two and one's a nine. And um, and so I think I'm the only one who f- who is the performer, clearly. I mean, our jobs show that. Is it the middle child who's the nine? No, she's the two. Interesting. And the youngest is the nine. So 
know. Yeah, because a lot of middle children end up being peacemakers too. And I don't know why yeah. that is, but I hear that all the time. I wonder if that's a female thing versus a male thing. Like I wonder if male middle children need to achieve and female middle children need peace. Hmm. Could be. I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting. interesting. So Enneagram, people ask me all the time. So I'll just say this on this one. If you want to learn about Enneagram and you keep hearing us talk about it and you think it's interesting, I would, what's your recommendations, Jonathan? I usually say read um, Ian Crone and Suzanne Stabile's book, The Road Back to You. I love that book. I think uh, the, the kind of 2.0 book is in in my view is Chris Hewitt's book. Oh, I love that book. Right. But it's like a, it's like a next, it's not an entry book. Yep. That's right. Uh, it's it's more of a 2.0 book. Um, I also am waiting for the Anneagram podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is that is what we should do when we do the snack podcast. Mm-hmm. The first half is snacks. The second half is me passing out Anneagram scores mm-hmm. to people. Yes, and we're gonna have what we need to do is like retitle everyone of the nine types. Uh-huh. That is a little more Annie esque. Oh, I think we need to gosh. create an Anneagram. That's really funny. I think I should. I actually kind of totally love it. Where people like take quizzes and everything. Exactly. Oh, I think exactly. that would be great. I think that's really fun. Okay, so you grew up in Georgia. I did. But you do not live there anymore. No, I live in New York City. I know. You're living my dream life. That's the city I never moved to that I always wanted to. Well, you know, what I've what I've said is, is you always have a place here. You, Thank you. you can come visit. And if you decide to just stay, it's fine with us. So, so it shall be. Uh, and that, your new book, how to speak God from scratch. I feel like that's so much of what that, where that book even came from was that transition from your like Atlanta Southern life where Christianity is like a normal part up to New York where it's a foreign language. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, when I moved here, a lot of people are like, Oh, did you encounter culture shock? And yeah, like, of course you move, you make a move like that from the Bible belt to New York city, you're going to encounter some culture shock. But more than that, it was that I encountered this language barrier that uh, it wasn't that I could no longer speak English, but I could no longer speak God. And, and I, you know, we've talked about this just, and a lot of people experience this, by the way. I experienced it when I moved because when I was in Georgia, I was I was a serving at a church. So I was very much insulated in a kind of Christian community. I had gone to- You Christian. were serving as like a staff member. Is that what you mean? Yes, I was a staff yeah, member yeah. at a church. I was, um, you know, so I was really, everybody that I knew and interacted with kind of thought like me, believed like me, went to the same church as me. So when I moved to New York- I, it wasn't just, I mean, New York does it in a very pointed way. I was really experiencing what a lot of your listeners experience every day that they go, when they go out and they work and they go to like a secular job and it doesn't matter where you live because, you know, America is changing north, south, east, west. You, you can go, you can live in Tulsa and you'll experience these tensions when you you, you go to work or you go to your PTA meeting or you go to your community event or you're hanging out in the cul-de-sac. And you're really struggling to have spiritual conversations. And, you know, the words create tension uh, or you're afraid that you'll be seen as an extremist or a religious fanatic. Or maybe you just think they're not going to really know what I mean or I don't know what they mean. And over time, you just stop speaking God altogether. And I found that in my life that uh, eventually I was just not having spiritual conversations at all. Right. And that like, I was lucky enough to get to come up for your book launch and release a couple of weeks ago and be with you in New York. And so, and uh, be at a couple of events with you and hear you talk about it. And it, it, it just amazes me how well you articulate what you went through. But like, what did that actually feel like on a day? Like when you realize like, oh, this language, these conversations that were really normal for me in a former life are not working here. Yeah. Was it scary? It was scary, but it was also, um, it was these moments of kind of punctuated discomfort. You know, you would have a conversation, you'd, you'd be, you'd be talking to your dry cleaner and she'd say, oh, you know, I'm friends with my dry cleaner. So she says, oh, what do you, what do you do for a living? And I'd say, oh, I'm a religion writer. And that would open up this door to theological questions, questions about faith. And I found that I really struggled. You know, somebody would say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you grew up like this. Oh, you're a Christian. What do you think about all that sin stuff? Mm -hmm. And you're like, "Uh, I, 
you don't even know how to answer those questions. And so eventually then I would say, oh, I'm a writer. I'm, I write about culture. You know, you'd have ways to like sidestep it. And as I, you know, as I've said before, I realized really quickly, it's a lot easier to write about post-Christian culture than it is to live in it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When you're actually having to live in that culture with real people who, who, you know, people like skin wearing people who have questions. Right. And who look you in the eyes. Yeah. It becomes really hard. And the hardest part, I think, is not just that oftentimes the person I'm talking to doesn't know what I mean, but through that process, I realize I don't know what I mean. I mean, that's the scary thing, right? Is the, the, the actual reality of it is, is that when someone else pushes you, it makes you realize maybe I don't know as much as I thought I knew what this meant. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's so scary. Because, and and I, I, I promise you, if we could take all of your listeners and put them into a room and we pass them out all index cards and we said, you know, because I have a YouTube series where I'm doing like man on the street interviews. I love them. They're so interesting. Thanks. It's funny, like if I if I put all your listeners in a room and said, what do you think the word gospel means? What do you think the word sin means? What do you think the word grace means? You would get almost as many answers as people. Uh, so what happens is, is we realize, and a, lot of, and a lot of those index cards, by the way, would be blank. Right. Because right. you try to define a word like grace, it's like the word color or the, you know, you've, you've, you use it, but it's really hard to define. Uh, there's a quote by Dallas Willard that I love, and I wish I'd include it in my book. You know, there's that old saying that uh, familiarity breeds contempt. Mm -hmm. And he says, he says uh, the process is actually more complicated than that. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, mm -hmm. and unfamiliarity breeds contempt. In other words, like we can talk about Jesus so often that we don't even really know. There's like, you know, if you remember Philip Yancey, the Jesus yeah. I never knew. Yeah. Um, that, that this person can become so familiar, they're actually strange. You just take right. for granted what it, what, who they are and what, it, and what these words mean. And here I was, this guy who writes about religion for a living. And I was sort of waking up to the fact that I'd taken all of these words in the vocabulary of faith for granted. Now, I didn't even know what they meant anymore. Yeah. Because you didn't go like, this is going to make a great book. It was like, oh, my gosh, my life is falling apart. Like, yep. this may be, ever right? So what do you do before it became a book? Like, what was it like in your real life? You know, it was, it was a period where um, I took faith which faith is at its best is integrated. Yeah. And I made it a, a compartmentalized thing. So faith, faith could live in my cell phone when I talk to my family. Faith could live inside the public school where my church meets on Sundays. Faith could live, but it was restricted, right? There were boundaries uh, around faith for me suddenly. Yeah, so faith yeah. didn't, the, 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 the dry cleaner, the barbershop, the dinner party, uh, you know, the conversation at the, the coffee shop, all of these things, they were outside the boundary. So oh, faith sure. didn't, didn't apply. You know, there's this phrase now, code switching. I would code switch. Uh, I would, I'd use some language when I was in those spaces in some ways, language when I was outside of those. And as a result, I had this kind of schizophrenic existence where I acted and talked a certain way inside certain places with right. certain people right. and acted and spoke a different way in other places. And I think a lot of people today say, yeah, I, I have the same experience. You walk through the door of a church and it's like, a metamorphosis occurs. Yeah. You like start saying the right thing. Yeah. 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 And yeah. that can be bad in its, in, in its own right, because some churches become so disconnected from all of our lives. But the, the goal is, is that there faith would be an integrated reality that it would be sewn into your DNA. And no matter who you're with or where you go, that's just part of who you are. It's just, it's just a core part of your identity. And what I realized was, is I needed my faith. I didn't know. I always assumed faith was integrated. What I realized was, no, my faith had always been compartmentalized. I just never left those compartments. I, I just was lucky enough to be integrated or to be, to be uh, isolated 
in those spaces where my faith could be at work, at play. That's really interesting. Once I had a life that was much broader than that, I was like, oh gosh, this is just something that affects me a couple hours a week. Oh, right. Gosh, and when when you're a religion writer, <laughs> when this is not only your language, but your financial existence, mm-hmm. that's so scary. And you know what it did for me? And this this is true, I think, of a lot of successful people. And I bet, you know, we're friends, but we've never talked about this, but I bet this yeah. is true of you. Most successful people who are successful in whatever field they're in, they, they always have this kind of inner voice that says you're a fraud, mm. you know, yeah. that like, you're really not that smart. You're really yeah. not that compelling. You really don't have anything to offer the world. Right. And everybody one day is going to figure it out. And they are going to figure, gosh, I bet everybody has that in their head about whatever, whether it's home or church or friendships or, you know, Right. You have what appears to be a successful family. You feel like a fraud. Yep. You, you're doing well as an insurance adjuster. You feel like a fraud. Yeah. It, it doesn't, it, you don't have to be a writer, a speaker, whatever. Everybody has that. Yep. And it, it was really compounded for me in this way that I was like, whoa, here I am writing about these things and, and how we need to be kind of culturally conversant as people of faith. Yeah. And I can't. I'm not actually able to do it myself. All these tensions that I used to hear from readers, uh, I was now experiencing myself. And that sort of played on that that inner voice in me that said, ah, Jonathan, you're just you're really just faking it. And one day people are going to figure it out. Yeah. And do you still feel that way? On a, like, do you feel like it's as loud? Or did this process change that? One, it's not as loud. But I've also become comfortable in, you know, I say... What I think my assumption was coming into this is, is in order to be a, a conversation starter, that's how I see myself. Yeah. It's like a, oh, that's I'm a conversation starter. Yeah. In order to be a conversation starter, I assumed that meant that I had to be the kind of person who had all the right answers. You know, that people could come to me and I was kind of like, you know, the, the Jesus Houdini. Like I could just pull rabbits out of a hat, right? Hey, what does this mean? And what does this mean? And what does that mean? And how should I think about this issue and that issue? You really can feel like a fraud if that's how you see yourself. Mm-hmm. Now I think um, I'm seeing that there is, um, that God exists not just in the answers, but in the questions and in that holy space between questions and answers. Mm-hmm. And I can live there and I can be comfortable with that. I'm realizing that one of, uh, the most sacred phrases I can utter is, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, people go, oh, yeah, how should I think about, uh, you know, being a Christian and thinking about taxes? And I go, I've never thought of that. Like, I, I right. don't know. I don't and know. I'm not. And, and that's OK. Or like, hey, how do you define this word? How do you think about what, theological concept X? And I can say, yeah, you know, I need to think about that. That's a great question. Yeah. Like, I need to think about that. And so shifting my posture away from that kind of um, certainty, uh, obsessed, answer, addicted um, notion of my own vocation, Mm. um, that has really helped me to feel less like uh, a kind of a secret fraud uh, than it used to. So I'm just going to real quick interrupt this fun conversation and tell you about my friends over at Prep Dish. You've heard me talk about them before if you have listened to the show before, but Prep Dish is a great way to save time and be efficient in the kitchen. Eat healthy. You know me. I'm gluten-free, dairy-free. And so this is a great way to have those kind of meals that are real foods only. But you can also, if you eat dairy, if you eat gluten, if you eat all the things, they have that for you too. It's a stress-free really tasty meals. And the owner, Allison, who I adore, is offering my friends, you guys, a free two-week trial of Prep Dish, which is awesome. You get to try it for free for two weeks. This is like a no-brainer. Just go to prepdish.com slash Annie. And if you ever need to use a code, just use my first name, A-N-N-I-E, in all caps. So Prep Dish is like a meal planning service. So every week you get an email with a grocery list and a prep ahead instructions so that all of your meals are ready for the week. There's no guesswork needed. You can let Prep Dish 
do all the planning for you. You don't even have to think about it, which is great for me because I'm just busy. It's not that I don't like cooking. I'm just busy and I have a crazy schedule and this is such a time saver for me. So after only like an hour, maybe a little bit more of prepping on the weekend, I have all my meals ready for the entire week. So um, make sure you go and try Prep Dish. I mean, why not try it for free for two weeks, right? PrepDish.com slash Annie and your first two weeks are free. Again, that's PrepDish.com slash Annie. Man, and I just think giving people permission to, because I think this has really changed me in the last few years, that God is in the questions, not just in the answers, is so uh, different than what I used to believe. I used to believe that when you were in the questions, you were lost. Mm-hmm. Not like, maybe not your soul is lost. Maybe it's not like, well, until you have the answer, you're going to hell. Not like that. But you were lost, and you mm-hmm. were in the wrong place. You were, the journey was you know, I think of like Wizard of Oz, you were in the, you weren't at Oz yet. You were in the, in the forest. Mm -hmm. And the longer I do this and the more we have these kind of conversations, I go, no, no, no. There's so much freedom in believing that God is, the destination is actually the questions half the time, right? Like just, he is in, in the questions with you. He is not waiting for you at the right answer. Yeah. And one thing that I say in the book, I point out, you know, that, that the, the ancient rabbis, they read every declarative statement in the Bible as if it had a question mark on the end. It was an invitation and they would say, God is in the wrestling, you know? So, so for us, it's not, all right, I got to figure this out. I have to, uh, memorize whatever theological point X, Y, and Z, and then be able to defend it to people. Mm. That's where we think God waits for us. Um, that though, I think leads you to a posture of spiritual closeness versus spiritual openness. And that when you're asking a question, you're at, you're in a posture of open handedness, right? Your heart's open. Your mind is open. You're, you're entering and wondering and wandering. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a place where God can often, uh, most powerfully intersect your life when you're open and not closed, when you're saying, not I have figured it out, but God helped me figure this out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What happens if you don't ever find the answer, Jonathan? I guess if the goal is to find the answer, then you fail. Yeah. But that begs the question uh, whether the goal is to uh, figure it out. Uh, you know, you read the scripture and you read things like when Paul says that we, you know, we see through a, a dim glass you know, which is about the way that every glass turns out in my New York uh, dishwasher. <laughs> uh, I think I need some jet dry. That's right. Um, but, you know, this notion that you look through it and it's foggy. But what Paul says is, he says, when I will see clearly mm-hmm. is not here, it's, it's after here. Uh-huh. So the goal for him is not to, um, is not to have a crystal clear glass because he knows it's never going to happen. That's and if that's the goal, you're going to live life spiritually frustrated. Yeah, yeah. The goal is, is to learn a kind of um, supernatural, is to develop a kind of supernatural comfortability with the haze. Yeah. And yeah, um, really so it, will you ever get to a place where you see clearly? No, I think I, 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 not, in, not in this life. I think that things often get clearer you know, but it's, it's kind of on that spectrum, but they never totally clarify. It's so interesting. Sometimes uh, some of my real conservative evangelical friends, like I have pastor friends and um, they basically believe everything they believed when they went to seminary. Mm. They haven't adjusted their thinking at all. Yeah. They're better at arguing it and they keep reading new regurgitations of those same views. And I've often said to some of my friends, kind of jokingly, I say, man, it must be great to have figured God out by the time you were 22. (laughs) Right. I mean, I'm realizing every day that I don't know. I I have a quote in in my book from, um, I think it's from Thomas Merton, who says the ultimate knowledge about God is the knowledge that we do not know God. Mm. Uh, That's the destination. The destination is arriving at the place where you say, I don't actually know God. That if I took, if everything I could know about God is an ocean, 
I have a droplet. Yeah. That's it. Isn't that funny? Because it feels like we know him so well. Like, I feel like I know him. Like, I feel like I get him, you know? And then you go like, man, my perspective is so small. Well, and we grow in the knowledge of God. But see, one thing that a lot of people don't know, and this goes back to, I wrestle in my book, as you know, with a lot of different Mm -hmm, words. mm -hmm. I thought about doing the word no, because the word no, particularly as John uses it, John says, I have told you these things so that you may know you have eternal life. We think of that word no in cognitive terms. Like so that you would, you know, we would say growing up, do you know for sure that if you were to die, you'd go to heaven? Uh, And that's kind of a cognitive, like it leads to certainty. But that word no that John uses in Greek is not a cognitive knowing. It is an experiential knowing. Okay. I have told you these things, not so that you would know about God. That's cognitive knowing is know about. No is to know. I think of it as a, (laughs) you know, one of my favorite Christmas movies is Elf. Yes. And he says, Santa. I know him. Uh-huh. He's saying, I have experienced him, right? Right. I, right. I it's not, it's not Santa. I can name 10 things that are true about him. Yeah. It's Santa. I have encountered this person so that there is a familiarity, so that I can say, Oh, yeah, when I step into that, I know God is in that because I know God because I've experienced God. That's what John is saying. I have told you these things so that the door to experiencing the divine has been drop kicked open. And now you can step into that. For most people, their goal is not to know God, it's to know about God. And so they they spend their all of their lives scurrying around, memorizing new, quote, truths about God, rather than just entering into God's presence with that questioning open-handedness to say, God, encounter me where I am and let me feel and experience your presence so that I would know you better and not just know about you more. Man, as silly as it is, that elf Santa Claus comparison is is very easy for me to think about because if if Will Ferrell as the elf, at, what's his name in the movie? Is it elf? No. No, it's um uh oh ah uh, everyone is screaming it into their at their they're literally they just, yelling. They buddy, are, buddy, buddy. Buddy the elf. Buddy. There we go. Everyone, everyone, you've been yelling it for eight seconds. I know. We're sorry. Um, <laughs> we're sorry about that. The way Buddy talks about Santa versus how I could talk about Santa. Because I can tell you like where he lives and I can tell you what he wears and I can tell you what he does, but I've never I don't know him. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can't tell you what he I can't tell you experiences with him besides like, you know, childhood, stupid, sitting on his lap moments. Right. But Buddy, like, lived in his house. Right. And actually knows Santa. And so, but I would have said, if you'd said, do you know Santa? I'd be like, yeah, of course I know Santa. Santa has a beard and he lives in the North Pole, you know. But you're right. The use of that word is so different. Yeah, that's really interesting, John. And when you think, if you you extend the metaphor. Keep going. um, For so many of us, that is that the Christian life for us has been a process of just accumulating more so-called facts, right? Mm. So it's like, okay, number one, he wears a red suit. Number two, he visits all the children uh, on Christmas Eve. Number three, he drives a sleigh. Right. But you are no closer to Santa if you have 10 items on that list or 40 items on that list. Right. So many people, though, that is their approach to the Christian life. And that's one of the things that I try to do in this book. You know, the book opens with this um, fun line. It it says, a friend of mine who's a life coach once said, dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. In the last chapter, most people will not catch this, but you know what? You get bonuses. That's right. You get bonuses on the That That Sounds Fun podcast. Uh, So the last chapter says, the first chapter says, uh, begins, a friend of mine who's a life coach once said, kind of this didactic way of thinking about um, truth. Yeah. The last one says, a friend of mine who's a mystic once said, uh, you know, that all of life mm. is not linear, but cyclical. We kind of keep coming back and revisiting the same things. Yeah. You know, a mystic is someone who who ex- it focuses on the experience, not just the knowledge. And that's really what I try to do in this book, oh, that's is brilliant. not just give people another 19 facts uh, to provide a new dictionary, a new set of definitions. But every chapter, when I'm reimagining grace, 
when I'm reimagining God, when I'm reimagining what the word loss means or disappointment or pain, those are just invitations to experience those things in new ways in mm-hmm. your own life. Mm-hmm. Not to just say, I thought this was X and now I can cross out number 12 and write a new definition above it. There are invitations for readers to come into this and say, I want, I, I want to encounter God's grace in a fresh way. Yeah. I want to encounter uh, God's love in a fresh way. And so that's really what I, I hope it does is get us to kind of transition from know about to know God. Man, that's really good, Jonathan. And I think that's true. I, I think that's being friends with you leads people that way. And so, of course, your writing leads people that way. I mean, just that's been my experience of knowing you has been it's walked me toward God like that. And so that's really cool. Will you, for people who haven't read the book yet, will you do like a real quick outline of the two halves of it? Because I think it's so interesting. Yeah. So the first half is like kind of the um, sets up the problem, which is we're not speaking God. Google Ingram data shows that sacred words and even moral and uh, virtuous language has been decreasing by 50% or more in the English language. So words like grace have fallen are falling out of usage. Yeah, and literally Google keeps track of all this, right? Right, they've scanned in but all the books that have been written since going back to like 1500 and you can search them. So That's crazy. these words are falling out of usage. But the, the, the second problem overlaying that is, and this was because I conducted a study for the book and you can read all the, you know, I have all the fun infographs, so it's easy to read. Yeah, the infographs are very fun in your book, by the way. I've never infographed before. I'm going to have to do that one of these times. It's you. really enjoyable. Well, no, it's, it's my, my version of a picture book. It's a grown-up picture yeah, book. Yeah, that's right. They will not pop up at you and you, there's no stickers in the back, but it's, uh, it's a picture <laughs> book. So I show in the, in the book that uh, also spiritual conversations are becoming endangered species, that only 7% of Americans say they, have a, they talk about faith regularly, and only 13% of practicing Christians. That means if you go to church this weekend, only one in eight of the people sitting there actually talk about their faith on a regular basis. So I wanted to know why. Nationwide, not just New York, right? Nationwide. That's correct. Across America. So we talked to over a thousand American adults and found this. And there's a range of reasons why people don't. They say they, they create tension or arguments that religious words become, have become too politicized. Or they say, you know what? Religious language has been used as a weapon against me by a pastor or a parent who hurt me with this. And so they just stay away from these things. Uh, But I wanted to know why, because we talk about things we're passionate about. You know, you and I, we talked at the beginning of this podcast about Georgia football, but we actually (laughs) do that normally. That's right. (laughs) I mean, how weird would it be if you and I knew each other for 10 years and I was like, wait, you're a Georgia fan? I'm a Georgia fan. I can't imagine, right? Wait, I mean, oh, you have siblings? I have siblings. Oh, what if you what if you had a friend for 10 years and you were like, wait, you have a spouse and children? Right. I never knew that. Right. Then you're having an affair. Yeah, if that's right. what happens, you're having an affair. Uh, yeah, true. True. You're the other woman. Right. Surprise. Right. Surprise. Hey, I don't know if you came to learn that from us today, but <laughs> you're the other woman. Yeah. Oh man. So, okay, sorry, so we on. talk about things we care about. And yet yeah. 70, almost 71% of Americans say, I'm a Christian. These things are important to me but less than 10% of those people now that the connection between passion and articulation has been broken. Yeah. So I wanted to figure out why that was, why it mattered, what we should do about it. And to make a long story medium, uh, I say in the book that uh, there is a way to revive dying languages. And we see this in linguistics that it, it happens through this kind of process of communal wordplay, that we get together with our friends and our neighbors and we have conversations, open-handed conversations, where we begin to reimagine what some of these words mean. So that's the first half of the book. The second half of the book is 19 essays where I model reimagining these words. Yeah. Um, and I will say, you know, I, I have a podcast built around this. Yes. That's what I want us to talk about too. I love your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. But you're going to be on uh, reimagining, uh, the word brave because, you know, I don't think that you, even you 
you didn't set out to do this. No. You didn't set out to become like a resident expert on courage. Right, no. You just you just went out and you started trying to live courageously and you started figuring out, you know what? Some of us need to reimagine what courage looks like. Some yep. of us re- need to, that's what a hundred days to brave is. Yep. We need, a, we need to take a good hundred days and reimagine what bravery would look like as a spiritual discipline in the 21st century in our own lives yeah. to allow that word to transform and allow that word to transform us. So every episode is with a different friend of yours going, digging deep into a word. That's correct. That's awesome. So, you know, whether it's Beth Moore and the word fellowship or Andy Stanley and the word scripture or you and the word bravery, that's really what I try to do in the book. But then I take other people who have become really thoughtful about words like you and the word bravery, Mm -hmm. you and the word courage to to get people on and say, how have we misunderstood this word? What's a more life giving way to talk about this word so that we could recover confidence in it and start not just using it, but living it again? Yeah. Yeah. What have you seen? I mean, because the book's been out for about a month, right? A month and a half. Mm -hmm. And what's your favorite thing people are responding with? Like, what is it when you're like, oh my gosh, this is cooler than I ever thought? You know, um, it has been um, interesting to see people. I share some really personal stories in the book. Yeah, you do. Like a great example. You know, I say some of these words I chose and some of them chose me. Yeah. One of the words that chose me was the word pain. I woke up a few in the middle of this four and a half year process and I couldn't feel my hands. And a lot of people out there don't know how scary that is, but you will know, Annie, when, you, when you're when you a writer for a living and you, we eat what we kill, yep. right? Yep. If we're not, if we're not writing and working, we're not, we're not paying the bills. And there are even people who are dependent upon us uh, to keep writing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I freaked out and the, the neuropathy. So what were your hands doing? They just wouldn't open? I woke up and they were they were just it almost like when your leg falls asleep from my wrists down both of my hands were numb. Wow. You know, it started to spread. It spread up my arms, into my shoulders, down my back, into my neck and it became painful. Wow. Not just neuropathy but actual pain and then the pain started to kind of migrate and I went to see um you know, specialist after specialist after specialist. Most of them could not tell me what was going on. They'd say, oh, it's fibromyalgia. Like the first, yeah, the first day where you're like, I just need a break. I'll watch Netflix. And and then the next day you're like, oh, this, is, this isn't this is going away. I was alarmed enough. Uh-huh. I woke up and couldn't feel my hands. I thought maybe I slept on them or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And I kind of shaking them out and the hot water, cold water, trying to do things. And as the day went on, you know, you go a whole day and you can't feel your hands and you're Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thinking, I'd have panicked. Something is not right here. And here was the other thing. My doctor had called me the day before my doctor's office and said, hey, we need you to come in and talk about your blood work. Oh, wow. And I was like, wait, what? Because I just had a physical. And of course, when I went in, it was just like, you're, you have mildly high cholesterol. I was thinking, is my white blood cell count off? Do I have yeah. a brain tumor? Yeah. Uh, of course. And then- you go the place where nobody should go. You set up an appointment with Dr. Google. Yeah, right. And, um, <laughs> you know, that guy, he needs, somebody should revoke his license. Yeah. He's, a, he's terrible. <laughs> he's an extremist. He is right? just an extremist. So I kept circling back to his waiting room. And every time I went <laughs> to see him, I got a different answer. Each one more harrowing than the one before it. And uh, it was awful. Yeah. It was really an awful period. and. Through that, I, I began to reimagine the word pain. I talked about ways that we talk about pain that are not helpful. You know, you go onto Amazon right now, Annie, and you type theology of. You'll find all kinds of theology of this and theology of that. Yep. You won't find a theology of pain. Really? And we are now living in, a, in an era of chronic pain. There are lots of reasons we may give for that. Everybody kind of has their own. But over 100 million Americans now struggle with chronic pain. And the Christian church has not even thought through that word enough that nobody's ever even written a a kind of comprehensive book on it. Nobody's thought about it that deeply. So there are lots of words like that where I bring in cultural commentary and personal narrative and then say, we have to think about this in new ways. What's been fascinating is to hear people say, I read this chapter. I wept through this chapter 
And I thank you for giving me permission to reject some of the, the harmful ways of thinking about this and to reimagine it in my own life. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's those kinds of stories that to me, it's not just people writing and saying, oh, you're so right. You came up with something interesting and a right. light bulb came on. It's not the light bulb. It's the tear. Yeah, That's what gets yeah. me is people who say, I struggled like you struggle. And I've, and I've been liberated because what you read really led me to something that I needed. Yeah, man, aren't we lucky that our job looks like that sometimes? Not all the time, but sometimes it looks like it's almost that picture of you standing behind someone and you you have your hands on their shoulders and you literally just turn them four degrees to the right and they see a whole new thing. Mm-hmm. And you go, yeah, yeah, just go that way. You didn't know that road was there because you were so busy looking at the one right in front of you. Just go that way. Mm-hmm. And then they leave us and we go like, we're so proud of you. <laughs> See you yeah, next time. Right. <laughs> you know, your people who read your writing are lucky. You know, in some ways, I, I want to be the way that you are, where you just, you leave it all on the field. And that's a real gift to people that you can do that. So I'll say you do the same thing, though. You just start, say you use smarter words and then you also leave it on the field. <laughs> the first half of your book is research and then you leave your heart out there, which right. I think is really beautiful and really helpful. And I think the way our world is changing, culture is going toward what you've experienced in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it's just not as Bible belty for most of us like it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And so this conversation of like, how do I not shy away from being a person of faith, but use these words that are faith words in a way that draws people toward God without being preachy, but without ignoring is a, is a skill we, I need to learn. We need to learn. Mm-hmm. So thank you for helping teach that. I'm grateful. My pleasure. And you know, you've been such an important part of, we had so many fun events launching this book. In oh New man, York. so yeah, fun. I mean, we did, I will tell you, we'll brag on this. Um, I, we had one where we had Savannah Guthrie yes. from the Today Show and Anne. She was so nice and so beautiful up close. So lovely. Yeah. And to see, I will say to brag on you because, uh, you, you know, Savannah is a pro. Yeah. She's a pro. Yeah. That woman is a pro. But you guys co-hosted that event and it's amazing to see you're a pro too. I mean, <laughs> thank you. it's it's been so cool to watch the last couple of years as your friend uh, and as a fan to see like God's hand on you oh, and the way you. that you've just kind of come alive. And um, it's been super cool to watch. And I'm glad that I'm glad that my book gave me uh, an opportunity to see you in action. Yeah, me too. That was really fun. I'd never, we went to the Soho house in New York and I'd never done that before. And <laughs> it was just so cool. I totally loved it. And then we got to do like both of our kind of dream come true-ish kind of moments of having a book event on the Upper East Side in a bookstore. Yeah, I know. At awesome. a Barnes & Noble that was so Barnes huge that they had their own, they had their own like uh, seminar room right. where you could do these kinds of events. It was, it was so crazy. Cool. Um, tell me what you're doing today in New York. What's your life going to look like? You know, I'm doing a lot of podcast. Oh, you have interviews all podcast day. Interviews. Yeah, I was about to say. I remember you telling me mm-hmm. that. Oh, what are you going to do to keep your keep your throat? How are you going to take care of yourself? That's the question. I have a giant case of Pomplemousse Lacroix downstairs. So Attaboy? I'll be come on. I'll be full of citric acid and God and and quote natural flavor. The 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 junk drawer, <laughs> the junk drawer of the culinary world. Natural flavor. amazing um hey so our last question that we don't i feel i'm so sad we're done because i've wanted to have you on the show for so long that it's like oh there we go but we'll do it again we will definitely do it again no question and i'm on your show coming up so people can get all the annie and jonathan show they could ever want um tell me the last thing we always ask because it's called that sounds fun is what sounds fun to you right now a vacation. Yeah. Traveling for fun, you know, cause I'm like you, I try this and this is so weird. Like normally we travel because we travel so much for work. I don't know how you are, but like to be able to travel for fun and not have to work. And you know, so what sounds fun is, is I'm going to take a few weeks in the month of November. I'm going to do research for a new book, but I'm going to go up to a friend's little cabin in upstate New York and just 
veg. Sit on the hammock and yeah. do some yoga and eat healthy. Are you going by yourself? I am. Yep. Okay. So I'll do That's that. That's an interesting thing. Something I've been talking with friends about is how challenging it can be to vacation as a single person. Yeah. Well, I get into it. I would love if like one other person would join me. We, yeah. There are extra bedrooms, by the way, if you want to come. Right. Um, hey, vacation. Uh, but uh, I... For me, it's kind of life-giving to get away because I feel like I, I live with roommates. I'm in New York. I step out and it's like it's salmon mating season. Everybody's like running up the stream and you just got to get in and get moving. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, so, right, right, right. It's crazy. So I really appreciate getting away and just having solitude sometimes. Yeah. And I'm proud of you for taking vacation because threes don't take vacation very often because they can't stop achieving. Uh, you know how true that is. Yeah. So I'm really proud of you. I have a lot of threes in my life that I have to say, Hey, have you ever had a vacation? Do you schedule vacation? Did you put uh, that on your, and you have to say like, Hey Annie, do you ever go to work? Do you ever like do right. things right. <laughs> or do right. you just play? Yeah. I know. I know. I love you, man. I'm so, so grateful for you really. Oh yeah. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate your friendship and I'm pumped. I'm pumped for your new book. Thanks. Me too. I can't wait. He's just the best. I love that guy. I, I hope you are like me and just feel like, I, really, I feel like every time I listen to Jonathan in podcast form or preaching from a stage or in his written word, I feel like I, I have so much to learn from him. So I hope you enjoyed that. Hey, listen, go grab a copy of Learning to Speak God from Scratch and make sure you follow Jonathan on all the social media spots and tell him thanks for being on the show. I'm just so, so grateful for him. And again, check out his podcast, Seekers and Speakers. Hey, if you get a chance and can rate and review this show, that would mean the world. And share it with a friend. We love when you guys tell other people to come join along and hang out with us. You know how this goes. It's just me and my friends hanging out and chatting. So I love to invite new friends along. So make sure you send this over to somebody who you think would really connect with what Jonathan was talking about today. And make sure you grab a copy of Remember God. Go ahead and pre-order that so we can give you the audiobook for free. If there's anything I can do for you, I'm embarrassingly easy to find Annie F. Downs across all the places, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, anywhere you need me. That is how you can find me is Annie F. Downs, F as in fancy. I hope you guys have a great day. Go out and do something that sounds fun to you. And we will see you guys on Monday. Monday.